According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You may turn to Matthew chapter 12 this morning as we get started, although like last week, we're going to do a lot of back and forth. This is an episode in the life of Christ where not only do we have it recorded in three gospel accounts, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but there are details to be found in each of those accounts that differ from the others, and so we're going to want to examine them all in order to get the complete picture. Last week, we examined, I think, the details out of Mark that were unique to Mark. And uh, this week, I want to key in on the other gospel accounts, although when we wrap it up with the unpardonable sin, then we'll be dealing with Matthew and Mark primarily. So let's start with Matthew chapter 12, and we'll go from there. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to ensure that each one of us is equipped with the Holy Spirit, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves under the authority of your word this morning, and we thank you for the privilege of the opportunity that we have to assemble together, to receive instruction, to be built up in the faith and strengthened in the inner man. Father, we thank you for the provision of the teaching that goes forth, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. Father, there's no quick answers, there's no microwave Christianity, we're here Uh, to be built up just a little bit more on this day, to be used by you to accomplish the work that you have for us. So, Father, we pray that today we would be equipped to be used by you according to your design, and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is episode 24 in the Galilean ministry, as we are on the downhill side of the Galilean ministry and uh, headed towards what is referred to as the last Judean and, and Perean ministry, but we'll get to that here shortly. As we look at it again, just simply reading from Matthew 12:22 and following, a demon-possessed man, that's a demoniac, who was blind and mute, was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And that's where we left off. We're going to pick up with this uh, Beelzebul here this morning. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, then by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges." But if I cast out demons, and this is a first-class condition assumed to be true, if I cast out demons, since I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And it goes on. Let me read on down through verse uh, 32. Verse 29 says, Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in 
the age to come. Now, that sounds really frightening, so we'll uh, get a lot of detail on that. People really run with that as if verse 32 is the only verse in this context, and they run with what's called the unpardonable sin and uh, really develop a, a pretty remarkable and uh, unsubstantiated doctrine based upon one phrase in one verse, ignoring the larger context of the, uh, the entire passage. All right, in the outline that we covered to this point, we did uh, observe the setting under point one, that it is, it is taking place in Capernaum. The uh, phrase we didn't read this morning, but in Mark chapter 3, where it says that he came home, is an interesting study right there, given the fact that uh, the Lord's travels kept him uh, moving from place to place, and he would have a, a base of operations, we would think of it as, but not necessarily a home, so to speak. We made more comment on it at that time. I'm going to pass over some of these details. Mark really went into the aspect of the fact that the demands of the crowd and the demands on his time were so extraordinary that he didn't even have time to eat. And uh, I think we all can understand that uh, occasionally as ministry or family or other work or other schedule kind of gets overwhelming and we realize after we've been at it for 10, 14, 18 hours and so forth that we've forgotten to eat and we can't remember the last time we did eat and the circumstances that take place there. Under point two, we observed that it was the healing of a demoniac and resultant criticism. You would think that casting out a demon would be viewed as a good thing. Uh, but for the crowd that can never be pleased for any reason, uh, they have to find uh, an excuse, even if they have to make one up. They have to find justification for slander, for uh, ascribing what would otherwise be good as being evil. And we realize that's standard procedure for satanic influence, that the nature of calling good evil and evil good is what happens when people are under the influence of, uh, of demonic uh, influences. So they, they accuse him of this, that, well, he's only doing this by the power of Beelzebul, and we'll talk about Beelzebul here this morning. But his healing of a demoniac and the resultant criticism opens a door for opportunity. We want to be aware of those open door opportunities. And they may come about through unpleasant circumstances. We don't like the unpleasant circumstance. We'd rather not go through the unpleasant circumstance. But since we're here already and the door is there, we better go through the door and see exactly what work the Lord has in mind for us to accomplish. Subpoints under this observe the vocabulary between Matthew's account and Luke's account. We discussed what does it mean to be possessed by a demon. Uh, it's a verb form that comes basically, it's built off of a noun. The noun is the daimonion, and then you make a verb form out of it. Daimonizomai means to be demoned. And it's, we do the same thing in English. We take a noun and then we make a verb out of it. And it's not always proper when we do that. But when we do it, we understand what it means. And so if you are demoned, that means that demons have indwelled you to the point where you are no longer you, that the demon is in control of your faculties, and, and uh, it's, a, it's a horrible circumstance. Fortunately, as we've taught, believers are not vulnerable to this. Believers have the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit, the strong man that's mentioned in this context, and so our house is not vulnerable to being plundered by virtue of the fact that there's no demon, even the mightiest of the fallen angels, Satan himself, cannot come in and overpower the Holy Spirit who indwells each one of us. We are protected, we're told, through God's grace. Unbelievers, on the other hand, have no inoculation. If you think of this as a 
as uh, as you know, like getting shots for the mumps or something. You know, we build up inoculations for various things and so forth. The unbeliever has no resistance or inoculation or immunity to demonism. They're just subject to it. And when you think about the might and power of fallen angels and the might and power of demons compared to the human realm of existence, uh, we just can't can't stack up. You know, it's going to invade if it wants to, and there's no option that we have to stop it. That is that unbelievers would have to stop it. Now, thirdly, the Lord's... Let me get past those vocabulary notes. The Lord's authority in casting out demons prompted some to consider his, Him as being the Son of David. See, these miracles left them with few options because, in large respect, you couldn't deny the miracle, so you had to find reasons for it. You had to rationalize it away. You had to ascribe some kind of evil to it, uh, assume that he was involved in witchcraft or something. But the crowd here is asking, he cannot be the Son of David, can he? But that question, as it's phrased, is a skeptical question. In the the, uh, Greek grammar of the passage, there's two ways that a question can be formed. And one way is very positive and expects the answer to be a yes. Another way is very negative or skeptical and expects the answer to be a no. And we do the same thing in English. And we get good at it in English. When your wife looks at you and says, actually, I got a majority of wives here this morning. So maybe I should turn it around. But this would be a clue for Casey when the day comes for him to be married. When your wife says... You're not watching another football game, are you? All right? That is a question that expects the answer to be no. That's right. This game is complete. It was the only one I intended to watch today. And I will now be turning the television off. And what exactly was it that you wanted me to be doing anyway? Right? There's chores to be done. See, at which point you regret the fact that you watched the earlier game because the one you preferred to watch was actually the later game. So now you regret that you watched the one. And if it's a triple header, then you're in a lot of trouble. We do the same thing in English. We have the way we have ways in which to construct a question where the answer uh, it, it was real obvious what answer it is we want to get. So when they do this, when they say he cannot be the son of this man cannot be the son of David, can he? It, it is very skeptical. It is dubious. It is expecting the answer no, and it's afraid that the answer might be yes. They don't want the answer to be yes. So it is a skeptical one. And some even wanted more miracles as proof. And uh, that's the correlating text in Luke 11 in verse 16. I pointed out one of the advantages you can have if you do a uh, software approach rather than a paper Bible approach is that you can put all three Gospels up side by side. And in the Luke account, which is the window on the right, In verse 16, others to test him, to tempt him, the perazzo tempting for his downfall, others to tempt him were demanding of him a sign from heaven. And the ludicrousy of this is is self-evident because he just performed a miracle by casting out the demons. And now they want him to prove that it really was a miracle by providing a miracle. So it's it's self-defeating. It's self-contradictory. How do you... Uh, it's like proving something by, by proving itself. They're putting a standard that can't be met because they're not satisfied with the standard itself. So others to tempt him were demanding of him a sign from heaven. That's verse 16 of the, of the Luke account. The brood of vipers, and that's what the Lord calls them in, in uh, 
other passages and throughout his ministry, the brood of vipers accuses the Lord of being possessed. That was in Mark's record. He has a demon. They accused him of being possessed and using satanic power to cast out Satan. And using satanic power to cast out Satan. Mark's record uh, records the accusation of the possession himself, but all three Gospels records that they viewed him as using the demonic power. That through, and it's not clear that you have to be possessed to use demonic power. Uh, witchcraft and sorcery is what it is, short of actual possession, where you can call upon demonic power to bring these uh, spellcasting type effects into, into action. But they are accusing him of using the demonic power in order to, uh, to bring this about. All right, now this brings us to where we left off, and we need to study this Beelzebul character. We need to study Beelzebul. All right, who is this Beelzebul guy? As we look at it here, he's called Beelzebul, B-E-E-L-Z-E-B-U-L. There are some spelling differences and this morning will be a little bit interesting because we're going to be discussing the nature of language and what comes across when you're trying to translate from one language to another language, which oftentimes doesn't do well, particularly with proper names. Generally, you don't try to translate a proper name. You just try to transliterate it, bring it across in a character, uh, you know, for the alphabet of the language that you're bringing it into. And that's what we have here. And the problem is, are you ready for this? is that we're reading English translation Bibles, which we do all the time. And in the New Testament, of course, we're dealing with English translations of Greek manuscripts. Okay, So we're dealing with an English translation of a Greek manuscript. However, in many cases, the Greek itself is not Greek, but it's a translation of a Hebrew word from the Old Testament. Beelzebul, in particular, is a translation of a Hebrew word from the Old Testament. We're going to look at it this morning from 2 Kings. Okay, so we're, we're talking about an English transliteration of a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew transliteration, which is not actually even Hebrew because Beelzebul was a Canaanite god. And so, yes, we have Beelzebub in Hebrew, but we come to realize pretty quickly that Beelzebub is probably a Hebrew um, nickname, a Hebrew uh, insult from the original Canaanite. So, as we look at an English transliteration of a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew transliteration of probably a Canaanite original, we realize this is kind of a, a snare. <laughs> so, we'll have a little bit of fun with it. The, uh, the Greek, Beelzebul, is number 954, for those of you that use the Strong's Concordance handy uh, tool to use, particularly if you're not familiar with the languages, and you can then, based on the Strong's index number, you can then do various concordance searches. For instance, you will find out that Beelzebul is only used seven times in the New Testament, and there are all the times we've looked at here, because it's Matthew 12, Mark 3, and Luke 11, where all the instances of Beelzebul occur. The one time that it occurs apart from our present study is back in Matthew chapter 10, in verse 25, where we're told that we can expect this ourselves 
A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If, and they have, if they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? But you and I can expect we're going to be called all kinds of names. The worst of names. The most satanic of names. Because that's how they treated our Lord. And we're no better than our master. We're no better than our teacher. We're simply disciples. So if the Lord received this kind of treatment, we can expect to receive this kind of treatment. All right, I can't even begin to outline all the names I've been called over the years, which is fine, I don't care. But it sure bugs Sharon when she hears me call those kind of things and all the slander and, and so forth that happens. All right, so you better get used to that. If your husband ends up being a pastor someday, he'll get called all kinds of things. Now, in the Hebrew... From 2 Kings chapter 1, we have Beelzebub with a B-U-B ending. And the, uh, the shurik is a long oo. So uh, we ought to be pronouncing this Beelzebub rather than Beelzebub. 2 Kings chapter 1, the first chapter of 2 Kings. Kind of an artificial division anyway. 1 and 2 Kings is really one great big book. So is 1 and 2 Samuel, so it's first and second Chronicles. That's why there's fewer Old Testament books in the Hebrew uh, Bible than there are in the English Bible, because all of these first and seconds that we have are are combined into single single books. All right, Baalzebub or Baalzebub. The B U B is a short syllable in English, so we can call him Baalzebub. Um. It's an interesting title, and it's probably not the original Canaanite title, but it's the name that the, uh, that the Hebrews gave to this guy. Now, there's a lot of Baal combinations. Baal is the main adversary to the Lord throughout the Old Testament. Baal, um, which is the first part of this, and this is your Baal right here, and I apologize, I don't know why I got that little gap right there, but Baal... That's the primary opponent to Yahweh in the Old Testament. Baal is the chief uh, Canaanite god. It means lord or master. Uh, Baal is also the word for husband, by the way. In the pagan context, the husband is the master and the lord, and the woman is basically the property and the... And the you know, it's, a, it's a low estimation of women in the, in the Canaanite mindset. Uh, so Baal is your standard word for Lord. And then you get a lot of hyphens and a lot of additions to Baal. There's a ton of them. Some of them are simply the name of cities. You know, Baal of Ekron, Baal of Gath, Baal of some other place. And, and, and each particular city would have their own uh, localized Baal. Nothing unusual with that. Zeus, there were many Zeuses also to the Greeks. Well, Baal Zebub, we have the hyphen here. He is, in particular, the god of Ekron. So this is the manifestation of Baal that is particularly the focus of Ekron, as we read about it here in 2 Kings. Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab, and Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber, which was in Samaria, and became ill. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I will recover from this sickness. Now I was asked, is this the sin and the death? Uh, we are teaching the sin and the death right now as a part of our First Corinthians series on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. Uh, I do not believe this is the sin and the death. The sin and the death is applied to believers. Uh, this is simply an unbeliever, a pagan, who is uh, 
who is being judged as an unbeliever. But he's a Jewish unbeliever and he ought to know better. There are Jewish scriptures available to him and the God of Israel is waiting to save him if he was to place his faith in the coming Christ. So the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and give them this real sarcastic message. All right? Sarcasm can be sanctified. And here is the angel of the Lord giving a sarcastic message for Elijah to deliver. Is it because that there is no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Why is it? Today we might say, why, why are you checking your horoscope in the Austin American Statesman instead of coming to Bible class and growing the, in the Word of God? So is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to inquire Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? The, the sad part about that sarcasm is that the answer to that is yes. Uh, Israel divested themselves of Yahweh Elohim from their very founding. When, when the kingdom split north and south and Jeroboam established the northern kingdom of those ten tribes, they knew that they were in a lot of trouble because the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they had Jerusalem. They had the temple of Solomon. They had the real priesthood worshiping Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. So Jeroboam's up here with ten tribes and he says, you know what? I got ten tribes, but they got the religion. And if I'm not careful, these guys are going to go down there to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh Elohim, so what Jeroboam does is he decides to set up idolatry. So all of Israel was idolatrous from their entire history. They never had a single good king. So verse 4, Now therefore thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Then Elijah departed. Anyway, this is where we are introduced to Beelzebub. He's in verse 2, 3, 6, and 16. So... Um, as opposed to without, I guess, actually reading all of this, down to verse 16, he said to him, Thus says the Lord, that's Yahweh, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, and what well, we've already read, he's faithfully delivering what it was that Jehovah had him, had him preach. Now, the specific nature of Beelzebub, as we say, this is Hebrew, but they're talking about the god of Ekron. Ekron was one of the five capital cities of the Philistines. Now, etymologically, Baal, number 1168, we're familiar with, and Zebub is the word for fly. That's why we have sometimes, if you have an old King James, or depending on what Bible you have, you might have Beelzebub with a footnote, Lord of the Flies. Okay, And there's a lot of medieval Catholic legends and all kinds of things about Lord of the Flies. Okay, Interestingly enough, Zebub is actually singular, so it's Lord of the Fly. There's only one particular fly that he's lord over. <laughs> All right. If you consider that flies, though, are attracted to dead things, and you stop to consider that if something dies and it attracts flies and maggots and other kinds of stuff, then this becomes more of a fearsome title. It's not a, a friendly little house fly. This is a death god. This is a God who presides as Lord of the Flies when death is being visited upon your enemies and, and uh, a, a, a demon that produces pestilence and disease. Uh, this would be pretty fearsome in, uh, in the ancient world, the mindset of, uh, of their culture. So Zebub, number 2070, is the Strong's Index number, and that is, in fact, a fly. However, 
we come to realize that this is probably not really his name. That the, the L ending rather than the B ending is much more natural. That's how it's rendered in the Septuagint. That's how it's brought across into the Gospels. The Zebul is probably the actual Canaanite name. That the Hebrews turned into Zebub as a way of uh, insulting Baal Zebul. There's other instances of that too, by the way, where the Canaanites would have a particular name and the Hebrews would turn it into something else as a way of insult, as a way of um, gloating over how uh, useless these false gods were. And Elijah in particular, this very prophet we're looking at, he majored in this. I mean, Elijah's greatest victory was where he was taunting Baal uh, pretty, pretty fierce. You know, well, maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe you need to, you know, and he's, these prophets of Baal were hopeless trying to call down fire to consume this offering. And, and Elijah is just, just making Baal look horrible, see. So you can imagine that, you know, if the, the, the true name, the Canaanite name of the god of Ekron being Baal and then the Hebrews come along and saying, no, no, Baal you know, that's, he's just Lord of the Flies. He's, he's, uh, he's inferior. He's a god of dead things. All right. According to Ugaritic and other literature, Lord of the air, heaven, or temple. The bull, pre, uh, the bull root in not only Hebrew, but also these other cognate languages. Ugaritic is so close to Hebrew. Uh, the, the bull ending uh, references something that's lofty, something that's exalted, something that's lifted on high. And so Zebul would mean uh, the highest Baal, the Baal of the heavens, the sky god, rather than the god of the flies. And uh, instances of that are plentiful. In fact, First uh, Kings 8.13, we'll just do a real short survey on this. Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in the thick cloud, I have surely built you a lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever. And that adjective lofty, that's our Zebul. Right? That's Zebul. Number 2073, by the way, is the Strong's Index number for Zebul. Isaiah 63.15, another instance of Zebul. Isaiah 63. 15, look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious habitation. See from your holy and glorious Zebul. Where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? The stirrings of your heart and your compassion are restrained toward me. All right. So there's the lofty and glorious, the holy and glorious Habitation in Isaiah 63.15, Habakkuk 3.11. See, and this is a um, title that really is keeping with Satan in the fact that he is a lofty one. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is the uh, one who was not satisfied with the elevation of his throne and sought to exalt it even higher. Habakkuk, Habakkuk 3.11.
sun and moon stand in their places, and they went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. And this is part of of, uh, a long prayer that Habakkuk is offering up here. But the sun and moon stand in their zabul, their lofty places, the places of their elevated, glorious uh, residency. So, I think we're better off if we understand this not as Baal-zebub, Lord of the Flies, but as Baal-zebul, as the uh, the lofty one, the uh, Lord of the air, the Lord of heaven, or as Ephesians calls him, the prince of the power of the air. All right? Baal-zebul rather than Baal-zebub. All right. Enough of that. If I get going on that, I'll have another 30 minutes here where I'll take you into the Ugaritic. <laughs> I do want to learn Ugaritic one day. That's uh, the little glimmers I've picked up on have uh, excited me. All right, Matthew chapter 12 then, back to our text. Whoever, whether it's Baal's a bull, Baal's a boob, whatever we call him, Lord identifies him with Satan. He is called the ruler of the demons, the archon. A-R-C-H-O-N, the archon. We use the word arch or arch for a ruler. The archangel is the ruling angel. Uh, we have arch dukes in medieval periods. They're higher than the dukes, the ruling dukes. All right, we've got arch, um, somebody's arch enemy, right? Is your number one supreme highest enemy. You might have other enemies, but your arch enemy is... The number one. All right. So he is the archon, the ruler of the demons. Ta demonion. That's the plural of the vocabulary you had last week. Demonion is singular. Ta demonion is plural. Ruler of the demons. Now, a lot of people overlap them and say fallen angels are demons. And they use this as one of the passages to prove that. This passage doesn't say that Satan's a demon. This passage says he's the ruler of demons does not necessarily mean that fallen angels are demons, and I've taught on a couple of occasions at least that I believe there is a difference between fallen angels and demons. But regardless, Satan is the ruler of demons. When you look at verse 26, we find out that he is equating Beelzebub with Satan himself. With Satan himself. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So, by putting verse 26 and verse 27 in parallel, we realize he's equating the two. He's equating Beelzebul with Satan. We don't have any issue with that. Satan's got lots of different names. Likewise, Mark 3, verses 23 through 26, and Luke 11, and verse 18. That's who Beelzebul is. We understand what's really taking place. We realize how evil this blasphemy is. Because the whole reason for the Christ to come to identify with us and our humanity, to take our place on the cross, to bear our sins, to be our substitute, to go to the cross to redeem for himself a people for his own possession, is because in the resolution of the angelic conflict, there is this this fall in existence. Satan has rebelled. The fallen angels are in open warfare. 
And the human race is created as the resolution to the angelic conflict to demonstrate God's sovereignty, to demonstrate God's grace, to demonstrate God's love and His wisdom and everything else. Now, Satan's great uh, rebellion was the substitute. The claim that his plan was just as valid as God's plan. That God had a plan that Satan disagreed with, and, and Satan says, you know, with his five-eye wills, here's my plan and program. And now, God himself has sent his son to enter into the world. And the very core reason of why he's there forms the basis of the argument that they're laying out here that, well, he's doing these things by the power of Satan. No. He's rejecting every temptation of Satan. He's coming to resolve the fact that Satan's plan isn't really a plan at all. It's just a rebellion against God's plan. So, the blasphemy that takes place here, called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, uh, we're going to hopefully get a good definition of that here today, because I think it's misunderstood, and I don't, I'm not going to begin to tell you today that I have all the answers on this either. I'm just going to portray what this text says. And we're going to have to let it go with that. If we had, uh, you know, two or three other passages where blasphemy against the Holy Spirit was referenced, we'd do a lot better with it, wouldn't we? But this is the one time it's spoken of. The one time that it's spoken of. All right. The unpardonable sin and so forth. We'll talk about it. So the, 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 the depths of evil that are, that are uh, communicated here when they say that he's doing these things by the power of Beelzebul, they strike to the very core of why the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. All right, now that gets us to point six. Jesus answers his critics with three lines of thinking. And this is great. All three of them leave them speechless. Any one of them would leave them speechless. But he gives them three lines of thinking here. And uh, we have them. Uh, we have them all in Matthew. Um, we have them all in Luke. Mark only records the first and the third. So let's just keep it here in Matthew 12. First of all, he says that uh, kingdom cities and houses with internal divisions are doomed. That ought to be obvious. Kingdoms, cities, and houses with internal divisions are doomed. Verse 25, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, and he does. See, people overlook that. He is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Satan's kingdom is divided. I hope we... If you've never considered such a thing, um, start to consider the difference between angels and people. Consider the difference between the fallen angels and the human race. When the human race fell into sin, the human race fell into sin when? When did the human race fall into sin? Adam and Eve. The original sin, the fall of man. And because of that, where were we? In Adam. There you go. So the whole human race then, from the moment Cain and Abel were born to Seth, to every human that's ever been born, right? Raise your hand if your mom was a woman. We're, we're part of the human race. We're all in Adam. 
we are uh, under that Adamic condemnation with the, uh, the imputation and all of the judicial judgment of humanity. That's where we are. Not so with angels. Now, Satan rebelled, and he wasn't the only one to rebel. I believe the Revelation 12 passage makes it clear that his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven. I believe that one third of all the myriads of angels followed after Satan in that rebellion. Two thirds remained faithful. All right, so we got godly angels, the two thirds, the godly angels, and then the one third fallen angels. All right, but every single one of those angels that fell did so in their own rebellion, their own decision, their own action. They, they, weren't, they weren't born in that fallen estate of in Satan. No such thing. We're all born in our fallen estate in Adam. Are you, are you catching on to that difference? So every fallen angel that rebelled, some would tell you that Beelzebul is different from Satan. I think they're one and the same. But I believe Abaddon is a separate one. And Apollyon is a Greek name for Abaddon. And we've got other names of other fallen angels. And in the book of Daniel, next Sunday morning, we're going to talk about it. And when we get to chapter 10, there's the prince of Greece, the prince of Persia. Why is the prince of Greece attacking the prince of Persia? They're both fallen angels. Because Satan is divided against Satan. Because the very same exaltation and pride that Satan had not content with where he was, not content, he wants to be greater, he wants to rule more, it's the same rebellion and self-exaltation and dog-eat-dog mentality. These fallen angels are, are trying to prove their merit over themselves. So Satan cats out Satan. He's divided against himself. You know, particular demons are infesting a person. And those demons are under the control of a fallen angel. Remember, they're organized into rulers, authorities, principalities, and powers. They have a rank structure. And then another demoniac comes along. But his angel outranks this guy's angel. What happens when these two demoniacs clash? Well, who are the fallen angels that are providing the, the military guidance for those demons? Say. You know, the, you never see this in the news. You never, I, you never see a, a news story, uh, you know, break away to commentary and say, now let's examine the angelic conflict Im implications of this warfare with Islam. You never see that. Why do the Muslims hate the Christians? Why do the Muslims hate the Jews? If all you're looking at is historical geopolitical reasons, they're clueless. You've got to go back to Isaac and Ishmael. You've got to examine the angelic conflict and who are the demons in the, in, involved in this process. And they'll never do that, of course. Not on a secular news channel, maybe in a Christian website or something. But who's going to examine it? Then, if they're not going to examine it from the standpoint of pagan versus Christian, how are they going to explain Islam versus Hinduism? Or the civil war going on in Sri Lanka. You've got Hindus blowing up uh, Buddhists and Buddhists blowing up Hindus. What's, what's going on there? Explain the demons there. So Satan is divided against Satan. And the demons that motivate and empower the, the Muslims 
are at war with the demons that empower and motivate the Hindus, that are at war with the demons that motivate and empower the Buddhists, and all the rest. The one thing that does unite them, of course, is the fact that they hate Jesus Christ. find that remarkable. They're there in Kashmir fighting over it, and the one thing they can't agree on is that all the Christian missionaries just got to go. They just passed a law evicting all Christian missionaries out of Kashmir. Well, all right. That way the Hindus and the Muslims can blow themselves up without interference from the gospel, but I'd rather get the gospel in there. Anyway, this is his first line of argument. That kingdoms, cities, and houses with internal divisions are doomed. So rather than use that as a point of slander to criticize Jesus Christ, that ought to be good news. <laughs> I like the fact that this world is passing away and along with it its lusts. I like the fact that this present evil age is slated for destruction. That's good news in my mind. His second line of thinking. Pharisaical exorcists might actually use such methods. So consult them for their testimony. If this is what I'm doing, if you think I'm doing this, then you go and ask your own people, these Jewish exorcists, the Pharisaical exorcists. Now these were all Pharisaical. The Sadducees didn't even believe in angels anyway. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, didn't believe in angels, didn't believe in fallen uh, demons or anything. So... Uh, if there was a party that was, was very strong on exorcism, it was the Pharisee party. I don't know about the Essenes. The Essenes probably had some exorcists as well. But the Sadducees certainly didn't. And the people that are in view here are the Pharisees, the scribes. And I gave you the Matthew reference and the Luke reference. There's also a reference in the book of Acts where these exorcists are trying to do their thing. They've got incantations, they've got spells, they've got ways that they try to cast out demons and so forth. And it's, I, I, I laugh every time I read it because the demons then turn and pounce on them. <laughs> and they say, well, we know Jesus and we've heard of Paul, but who are you? And then they just turn and, and pounce on these people. All right. He says, who do your sons do? If, uh, verse 27, if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? You know, your party has these exorcists. They're obviously not doing a very good job of it because every time the Lord turns around, he's encountering other demons everywhere. You know, if the Pharisees were, you know, if they were casting the demons out of their uh, cities and synagogues and places, then, uh, you know, I mean, the Pharisees have been around for 200 years by the time Christ comes on the scene. They're, they're clearly not doing a, uh, that good a job at it. problem is, see, they themselves are a brood of vipers. So uh, go, go consult them. They, they, they'll be your judges. They'll give you the whole story. Because, see, they know what's really going on. The third line of argument. Point C. If this is the Holy Spirit at work, then Israel is presently beholding the at-hand kingdom of God. If this is the Holy Spirit at work, stop to consider. They haven't had a spirit-filled prophet since Malachi. The Old Testament was completed 400 years ago. 
Now all of a sudden the Holy Spirit has descended as a dove at his baptism and the heavens were opened. Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And now he's traveling and he's speaking the Word of God and he's performing miracles. If this is the Holy Spirit at work, and you have to conclude that it is, it's a first class condition. If, in verse 28, I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is not only at hand, it is upon you. I phrased it at hand in this point. When we get into point seven, we'll illustrate the fact that it is upon you. It's not just at hand. It's on you. It's right here. You can't escape it. Remember, the the message of John the Baptist was repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Recall what the coming of the kingdom was going to bring in? It was going to usher in a universal indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The book of Joel, chapter 2, says, Behold, after these things I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men and, and old men will see visions. The coming kingdom will have a universal outpouring of God the Holy Spirit. And so here he is saying, look at this. The Spirit is working. These demons are being cast out. And they're not coming back. One of the things we're not going to get to in this episode, but in Luke 11... It comes up in a later episode, and we'll deal with it at that time. We won't deal with it here. But one of the things that he talks about in Luke 11:24, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and not finding any. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. My house. See, he gets pretty possessive of the one he's possessed. Um, and when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. We'll talk about that. When the, when the Jewish exorcists are doing their thing to drive out a demon, <laughs> what's to stop that guy from going out and getting seven other friends and coming back? And they have a little warfare there, and they're able to overpower, and they repossess in greater numbers. You wonder how many expulsions and repossessions and expulsions and repossessions Legion has gone through with different groups of demons under different fallen angels that are fighting back and forth for control of that guy. The Lord comes along and drives all of them out permanently. Well, we'll deal more with that in uh, some upcoming classes. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's upon them. There's a power that's here at work that they just can't even comprehend. Not understanding the Scriptures nor the power of God. Now, point seven. We'll get an introduction to this and come back to it next week. The attribution of satanic power rather than the Holy Spirit's power for the work of Jesus Christ constitutes the unpardonable sin. We're going to have to deal with this. What is this unpardonable sin? For this, we get it in Matthew 12, 31 and 32. We get it in Mark 3, 28 through 30. The parallel account in Luke doesn't have this information, but Luke does put this information in a separate passage in Luke 12, 10. So if you want to add Luke 12, 10 to that, you can. Luke 12, 10 where Luke records the content of this doctrine, he just records it in a different episode.
where he says, uh, this is in the episode where he talks about your hairs are numbered and you're worth more than the sparrows and and uh, you deny the son, then he will deny you before the father. And then he says in Luke 12:10, everyone who speaks a word against the son of man, it will be forgiven him, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. So one reference there in the Gospel of Luke that corroborates what we're told here in Matthew and Mark is just in a different episode. So it's not a part of this parallel study. Matthew 12, verses 31 to 32. Mark 3, verses 28 through 30. And this is what they're doing. And Jesus Christ says it will not be forgiven. All right. There's... He's performing a miracle by the Holy Spirit, and they're saying that he did it by the power of Satan. That's what he did. That's what they said. And Jesus describes this as a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and that it is not to be forgiven. Now, I'm going to give you some things to chew on in the next seven days. You've got a week to think about this. How many different kinds of forgiveness do we have in, in the Bible? Just stop to consider how many kinds of forgiveness we have in the Bible. If you stop to consider the positional forgiveness, the eternal forgiveness, where you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're saved, you have redemption, which is defined as the forgiveness of sins. That's your positional eternal forgiveness. But we also have the temporal experiential forgiveness. Bottom circle. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Say, I was saved in 1973. Some of you were saved long before that. Some of you were saved after that. But at that moment I was saved, I was redeemed. I received redemption, the forgiveness of my sins. Eternally forgiven. Justified by His grace. Receiving His righteousness. Internal inheritance reserved for me cannot be defiled, will not fade away. However, in the outworking of my Christian walk, I've sinned since 1973. I think 14 times now since 1973. And now I'm telling a lie, so I have to confess that too. All right. We continue to sin, and so we confess our sins. And he is faithful and just to forgive. Now, it's the same word. The same word in Hebrew, same word in Greek, same word in English. We talk about forgiveness. But it is an experiential, temporal forgiveness within time. Different from a positional, eternal forgiveness outside of time. And that's two. There's more. Because there's human forgiveness. If your brother sins against you. And that's the one that Peter hated because the Lord told him 70 times 7 and Peter said, Lord, that's crazy. Peter thought he was doing good if he forgave the guy seven times. And I know Peter would have never had any intention of forgiving anybody seven times. But he says, seven? The Lord says, no, 70 times seven. Now that's human forgiveness between human beings, between brothers. There's criminal forgiveness where you might be legally guilty, but your sentence is commuted. You are forgiven legally. 
There's all kinds of forgiveness. There's debt forgiveness. Debt forgiveness. See, I received that one time. We're very thankful for. Back when I was using my GI Bill benefits to take classes at Moody Bible Institute, um, they were paying me the wrong amount. And so I was taking Greek, Hebrew, uh, some Bible surveys, some other courses, doing all this Moody Bible Institute stuff for about three years. And then they sent me a letter saying, we made a mistake. We were paying you as if you were a full-time resident student. We should have been paying you at a part-time rate or a, a uh, extension course, correspondence course rate. So we paid you too much. And over the last three years, we paid you, and it was insane. It was uh, six thousand, eleven thousand. I was multiple thousands of dollars over three years. And they include. They they said, please return. I think eleven thousand dollars. And they even included a real nice pink envelope in the letter they sent. So, because obviously I just had $11,000 sitting there in cash in the house, I was just going to take it and stuff it in the pink envelope and mail it into them. Saying, oh, sorry, you're right, your fault. Well, I ended up writing a letter and then writing another letter and about six months of back and forth. And, and since everything was all obvious and they even admitted in their letter that it was their mistake, not mine, then I wrote an appeal for, uh, I forget what they called it, pity <laughs> you know we feel sorry for you kind of thing anyway they forgave the they forgave the debt so it was finalized that it was their mistake it was their fault i i truly owed the money but because it was their fault and it was unreasonable that they paid me a little bit a little bit a little bit for 36 months and then they want it all back right now they said you know what that's that's right it's it's our mistake and so they forgave the debt can you believe that Government. And they just wrote it off. Wow, that's pretty nice. So there's financial forgiveness. There's debt forgiveness. Criminal, financial, personal, between two people. Of course, as far as God is concerned with sin, there's eternal and temporal. Or what we call positional and experiential. Okay? So there's loads of different forgivenesses. And the thing is, is we better figure out what's the forgiveness that's being spoken of here? What's the forgiveness that's being spoken of here? And uh, fortunately, the text itself gives us our clues, and we'll pick up on that next week to, uh, to break that down. All right. Any questions? Anything before we close in prayer? We're going to be a minute early, but I don't want to get started on something and have to not get into it. All right, Casey. Is it possible that a demon would leave on its own? I suppose. I don't, I've never met a demon. Well, actually, I have met demons, but I haven't spoken to them personally and gotten on a first-name basis with them. Um, I, I suppose if they, if they found another more desirable object, then they might leave one. I mean, that's, that's worldly, isn't it? You, know, you use whatever you're happy with until something better comes along. That's, that's pretty cosmic. So, uh, yeah, I would think so. They, they viewed people as preferable to animals, but swine was preferable to nothing. So they've got preferences and, and things that they desire. So, uh, yeah, I could think a demon might leave if something better came along.
Yeah, that sounds reasonable. We'll have more on that uh, next week as well when we talk about the possession and the nature of the satanic organization. So keep your armor on. If we teach about this kind of stuff, it tends to heat up. You know, the principalities and powers, they don't like, darkness doesn't like the light exposing the darkness. And so when, you're, when a local church is teaching a passage such as this, it, it draws attention. All right, so keep your armor on. Don't, don't fall for the next temptation that comes along. All right. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for this study this morning. We do ask for your hand of blessing upon us. Father, open our eyes to see the reality of, of demons for what they are, fallen angels for what they are, and teach us, Father, how to embrace your word as a provision for all things necessary for life and godliness. Equip us with the full armor. Equip us with the sword of the Spirit. Utilize us for the glory of, of our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we have so many burdens today in prayer. You know what they are. We give them to you. pray that you would work in us to make us more effective in our prayer life. And uh, however else you choose to answer the specifics of these prayers, Father, uh, develop us as more efficient and effective and more godly prayer warriors. Father, we understand we are never more Christ-like than when we're interceding on behalf of others. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.